Yo, what up, y'all? My name is Open Mike Eagle, and welcome to What It Happened Was, Season 2, Episode 6. We are once again sitting with Mr. LP, who's the subject of this entire season as we explore his various projects and ups and downs in the music business and in life. And this is following Season 1, where we spoke with Prince Paul, the legendary DJ Prince Paul, and did the same thing. And speaking of both of those seasons, you can wear both of them. You can. You can wear both of them. If you'd like to listen to them, you can also wear them. There's T-shirts available for Season 1 and Season 2 of what had happened was, if you search Merch Engine, what had happened was, Merch Engine, what had happened was, you will be given access to purchase Season 1's T-shirt or Season 2 while supplies last. We are running low. We've sold a bunch already, and we're down to our last few available for both. I don't want to say how many exactly because uh, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this. So if I say any number, it's probably going to be a lie by the time it gets to you. But know that they are selling out soon and we're going to begin shipping them next week. So go ahead and do not hesitate and grab that T-shirt now. Search Merch Engine. What had happened was to get access to one of them, their shirts. And there's two to choose from. This is the Stony Island Audio Network. This is what had happened was on the Stony Island Audio Network. My name is Open Mike Eagle, and Stony Island is a network that I have convened and curated with folks in the hip-hop space to give themselves a voice to be able to have the opportunity to create their own narrative. For a lot of times, people in this hip-hop world, they don't get that opportunity. Their narrative is either defined by people's public opinion, or the narrative is defined by writers, or the narrative is defined by public relations people, and that can all line up and be great, but I think it's... It's the greatest thing in the world to be able to get that context from the artist themselves or the writers themselves or the parents themselves. And I say those categories specifically because I represent shows that are on our network. The Fatherhood Spot with DJ EFN, Manny Digital, and KGB. Super Duty Tough Work with Blueprint and Illogic. Dad by Rap Pile with Nate LeBlanc, David Mond, Damone Carter. Can't Knock the Shuffle with Sean Kantrowitz. Self Quar with Baron Vaughn. And uh, we got a couple more things we had pretty soon, so stay tuned. This is what had happened was season two, episode six. The subject of this interview with Mr. LP is his second album, his second solo album, I'll Sleep When You're Dead. Um, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I know that in the last one, we covered Def Jux and as great of a time that was musically, there was a lot of darkness in that era. Um, there was the troubles that led to the, to the label having to shut down. Uh, there were the the fates and choices some of them people made um, coming out of that period, which was stuff that we didn't really want to dig into, but stuff that I think definitely infused the conversation um, as we weren't able to fully celebrate the releases out of the context of everything else that went on. Um, I really like this episode. I really like this conversation because I feel like um, Elle's really proud of this album and it's such a goddamn great, listen it's a beautiful piece of music and it's great to hear all of the stories and uh, and and reasons and choices and circumstances that all led to its creation from uh working with 
Trent Reznor and being overjoyed at the amount of music that Trent sent him back to be able to use um, to, you know, the blog that L made on a whim and didn't think anybody would catch on to it. It still lives on to this day where he was charting, making the album and telling all these stories and growing a, a big, nasty mustache. We get into all of it here. Season two, episode six, what had happened was. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. I'll sleep when you're dead. You guys get some snaps for help. Deluxe labor, the underground undertaker, the whole capers, independent as fuck flavor. Audio exhibit, visit the history to him winning without fucking with the industry. And him losing without fucking with the industry. No illusion, we tracing every movement in the symphony. This is official from lifting of pencils Cold flow the depth jugs up to the fist and the pistol I'm sending questions like infinite missiles Digging for details when stories from the past come up And if he don't remember then he has to shrug It's what the podcast does, what had happened was What up, good people of the internet? My name is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another episode of What Had Happened Was with our perpetual guest. He's, he's trapped in the Forever. prison of self-reflection with us. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for our um, our guest on the on the hot seat the whole season. Give it up for LP, y'all. Applause in your mind. Applause in your mind. Use your, How you doing today, sir? Use your mind hands. I'm good, man. Mm-hmm. I'm chilling. I'm chilling. I'm just... Um, working Word. which is something that i realize that is the only time that i'm happy really 
<laughs> it's like mm. when, I'm, when I have to obsess it. over something. If I don't have any music, then I have to have like a project, like file organization or something. Like I have to do something with, yeah. with my mind. Other than that, I'm chilling, man. No complaints other than the, the officially registered perpetual complaints about the state of the world. Yeah. Those are, on, those are on the record, though, so you don't need to rehash those. Absolutely. Well, yeah. we will rehash something today. Uh, your your second solo LP, LP, LP. Ugh, I didn't like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> imagine, imagine being feel me. Good. Imagine being me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I just had this odd flash yeah. of how many times that must have happened to yeah. you. Gosh, it just goes. Uh, it just, okay. it just washes over me at this point. It's fine. At yeah. this point, yeah. No, I get it. Uh, we're talking about. I'll sleep when you're dead. 2007's release on your own Def Chucks imprint, and man, it's been it's been really dope. Like sitting with this album again. I remember I bought it when it came out. Like I had the CD. I was driving around LA with it. Like cool. And I don't know, man. I'm going back to it now. It's like, man, this thing, this thing is like really great. I think the the story of it for me, and this is what I want to get into you with about it, is it seems to speak to a musical evolution for you. Mm. But I don't quite know how to describe it because it's not necessarily introducing anything that wasn't there before at all. It just seems to be more boldly something else. Mm. And I was wondering from your perspective, if, if that's the way is, was it seen for you as a different approach and something that you could, you could spell out for, for us listeners? It's definitely my favorite solo, mm. solo record that I've done. And I love Cancer for Cure too, but it was a step for me. I think that's probably why I like it so much. Fantastic Damage was everything that I could think of with absolutely no editing and complete disregard for anyone else's time but my own. And just being like, hmm. it's all here. Like every single thing that I thought of during the time that I was making this record is here. And I, I think that those songs in a lot of ways were sort of it was stream of consciousness in the sense that I think I was writing to find out what I was writing about. You know, like I, I just was, uh, I was just sort of writing and writing and trying to figure out what the fuck I was trying to say and then landing it eventually. But it was maximalist. I let the songs run on. I let the thoughts go on. And, mm-hmm. and by the time I had gotten five years later to this record, I was a better rapper. I was a better producer. I was a better writer. Um, I had decided that I wanted to make songs that were really specific. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to do, Mm. I wanted to inhabit characters. And so those songs themselves, they all really had a point. They all really had a part to play in this story that was sort of uh, an abstract documentation of how I had been feeling for the past however many years. Um, But instead of it just being like, I'm Jamie Moline and this is how I feel, which I think in some ways Fantastic Damage was that, I was sort of introducing the person to the world as opposed to just being like a, 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 you know, a slick rapper. And, And that was something that I think I had to write a lot to get to on Fantastic Damage because I hadn't really done it that much before. Right. So by the time I got to I Sleep and You're Dead, I feel like I really wanted to refine it. As a writer, I really wanted to make every word count and I wanted to mm. not have a, a wasted moment if I could. And also I think I had gotten sort of sonically more proficient. I had really got, you know, I had stepped mm. my game up. I had done a lot of work. I had done a lot of people's records. I had done a lot of different 
even different genres. I have worked with different people throughout the years and kind of stepped up my my game, you know, um, and I think mm-hmm. on every level. You, you mentioned your, your increase in proficiency. I mean, this album sounds like more musical in the mm. traditional sense for sure where mm. like there's all these chord changes and everything and movements within songs mm. um we've talked a lot about your journey through hip-hop but like i feel like this album demonstrates like some real experience with like music theory and and mm. what is your history with like like classical training when it comes to like music stuff apart from when i was a kid and played piano and some trumpet and some saxophone but was never really great at any of it. Didn't didn't catch my attention. It was like uh, the couple of years that I played saxophone. I remember they abruptly ended when I caught a glimpse of myself doing it in the mirror, and I was like, "Oh no, I can't, I can't do this." <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, "There's no, there's no future here. There's no future here." I, I, I just, <laughs> I just look ridiculous. But I think that the music theory was self-taught. It was self-learned. It was just years and years of crafting music and also working with other people brought something out of it you know during the time that i had spent in between those records i kept busy i was doing a lot of stuff and i started to get called for a lot of remixes of bands you know not mm. not like um shit like nine inch nails and mars volta and back tv and like, on the radio tv on the radio um and um you know i had done a jazz album i had done um i had scored a film um you know, all of this stuff, all of these projects, I, I always took them because for me, it was a chance to kind of sharpen my blade and, the, and to bring something back. And it was always to bring something back to what I did. Because what I do, that's my life work. These are the things that I want to be remembered by. And it was always like five years in between them. And I, I, I was really fucking trying to learn something in between. You know, I was trying to, I was trying to make sure that when the next time you heard me, or the next time that I kind of sat down to the table that I had a new set of understanding, a new set of tricks up my sleeve, some sort of refinement, something that you, you could listen to the shit and be like, you know, he's growing, he's stepping somewhere. Mm. And a lot of those things that I did, sonically, they had to be really on point. A lot of it was major label shit that I was remixing and it was like, I had to like up my gear and shit just to even open the files mm. that motherfuckers were giving me. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like Mars Volta would send you like a fucking thousand track file and you'd open it and your computer would explode and you'd just be like, I can't, what's happening? <laughs> so, I, so I spent a lot of money um, and time getting my gear up and also working with other people doing these other projects. And so I just kept kind of learning and refining what it was I wanted I, to do with, with these songs. Fantastic Damage, there was a lot of movement in those pieces mm-hmm. of music but um it always felt like movement like entropy <laughs> you know? it was mm, like it right was some yeah movement like you took a fucking like a dollhouse threw it down a flight of steps and by the time it got down <laughs> you know it was just it was just yeah. exploded you know um yeah it, it had changed by then yeah <laughs> it had changed and you didn't know what the fuck happened and you know this was a little bit different. I think it was more intentional. I wanted everything to fit like a glove. Really just constantly working to kind of figure out this craft because I'm totally self-taught. I'm not um, okay, great. like we all are, you know, like we all are. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the beauty about hip hop music is that kids get involved and they treat it like a fucking Lego set. And, and you start to use your influence on this thing and 
because we're untrained and because we are sort of looking at it evolving from a perspective of people who are just ripping shit apart and mashing it together we have this right. different different way that we grow up in music you know we have a different way that we become musicians and i wanted to be able to look at this and be like look this is not this is not something you can just do <laughs> you know like you have to like mm. you know how everyone just thinks you know everyone who doesn't know hip-hop music or whatever like all the adults in your life always just thought it was just some fucking cheap way out it's like no it's not a right. cheap way out it's a fucking craft it's, and i dare you to tell me how i made this <laughs> you know like there was another thing too which is that i was kind of tired of getting on stage and just fucking rapping the cats for like you know four minutes and then stopping and doing and doing it again. I wanted to make jams that I felt like I could perform on stage that were that had emotional content, rises and falls and crescendos and things built into it that would lend itself to a good show. Something that that was powerful because of what the music was. That was my goal with this record, and I think it was the first time that I kind of landed on that. Like I I, I kind of did it for whatever it was worth, you know, for what I could do at the time. It was a storytelling record. Yeah. And it really is crafted, man. One thing I found really interesting listening back to it and, and knowing I'd be able to talk to you about it was even like the transitions from song to song. They're so seamless. And earlier work didn't didn't have that. Earlier like songs were kind of just self-contained songs. Mm -hmm. Was stuff like that, was that stuff that you just knew you wanted to do when you were making those songs? Did that happen in like the mastering process? Like yeah. the, the, the seamless nature of the album, like how did, how did that come together for you? Yeah, I mean, I started making songs in batches. I started making songs and mm. creating them in batches. I wanted this first song to be able to relate to the last song and the second song to be able to relate to the second to last. I wanted to craft something that, um, never fucking let you go and um mm -hmm. and it was that wasn't just like gravity rap 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 you know i just figured fuck it man this is my this is my canvas like like and i gave myself all the time in the world to do it i was i was notorious for taking five years between records and when you're taking five years between records a, a it wasn't because i was taking five years it was like I was dealing with a whole bunch of other shit. I was—I had a fucking record label that I was trying to run, and I had all the, so I never had any time to myself. So really, really, it was like I was taking like two years. But I would say over the course of those five years, I was making music that was going towards it, and I never rushed myself. I always let myself obsess over the shit, and then, and and I definitely obsessed over that record. Like I just kept tinkering with it and kept tinkering with it, and to the point where it was. Eventually, it was just like, all right, you gotta, you gotta let it go, man. You gotta, you gotta stop. But I felt really good about the result. Two of the songs on here that I feel like were really like linked. Like when I listen to them, they like even though they're two wildly different, they're one right in front of the other, and they feel linked. Um, Habeas corpses into overly dramatic truth. Uh, now I don't know if those were made in a batch, but let's just start with Habeas corpses, which to me is like, I. You know, I listen to a lot of shit like Frank Zappa, um, you know, and They Might Be Giants, King Missile, like all of mm. these these indie bands. And then like, you know, Zappa, of course, is mm. is is a classic musician. Mm. But what I'm thinking I've always marveled at in rock music is how imaginative those artists are allowed to be. Mm. Like they get to craft these stories in these worlds that hip hop in in a large sense it wasn't encouraged in hip-hop mm. like you know what i mean it always felt a little weird but like this is a 
a wild story right. in this song, Habeas Corpses, you and Cage. Like, yeah. it's, it takes a long time to really understand what's happening. And it's like all these two, it's like a little movie. Two types of people in this world to recognize. Conquered in the one holes and the right foot, the next in line. The crosshair, my eyes, a vessel to guard. The container that kept you around in a hole in the yard. I would love to hear a little bit about, like, coming up with the idea and like bringing cage into it and just what that experience is like of putting that song together there, there's sort of a war trilogy in that record run the numbers and the habeas corpses into overly dramatic to truth but before that is dear sirs correct yep just dear sirs right. and then run the numbers yeah right I'm, i have to go back into this to explain habeas mm -hmm. corpses got you dear sirs was my fantasy of what i would say if i were drafted to, right. be, to, to go to war for this country. And the idea being that my statement in response to being drafted would be, even if the most unbelievable, impossible, fantastic, and ludicrous things were to occur, they would still be more likely than me fighting in a war for you. If the pavement comes alive, I'll flap a shab, a toothy smile, comprised of traffic cones and manholes become eyes, and birds burst into flames while singing Satan's praises and fold into the sky and rain down ashy danger. And and that was the idea of that letter. Like sitting there and typing this this furious letter, like even if the fucking even if the streets became water and, and even if if, if, if <laughs> like it's still more likely to happen than than me fighting in a war for you motherfuckers. It's like the and, opposite of a love song. It's it, like Yeah, it's, it's, it's like definitely not a love song. The the opposite of I would climb the highest mountain. It's like the mountains exactly. could turn to shit yeah. before I would do this for you. Yeah. Like we could literally, you know, like the fucking like people could turn into snow cones, and it would still be, <laughs> it would still be like, you know, that's weird. But you know, what's weirder the idea of me going to war for you, and yeah. that led into the run the numbers shit, which is kind of was in, a, in an abstract way, sort of being like in the shit, you know, kind of being in the, in, you know, in the war. It's a sci-fi fantasy allegory. Right. That's all. I mean, that's really obviously what it is, you know. I just imagined, you know, I imagined a world, a future world, in which fascism had you know emerged and taken over and i just tried to get myself in the head of one of these average joe schlub motherfuckers who gets up every day puts their fucking camo on loads up their rifle and goes down to the fucking job and, they, and the job is they shoot motherfuckers they execute whatever they may be prisoners refugees prisoners of the system the working Joes of the concentration camp. You know, the guys who, when the shit comes down and there's fucking finally, there's some tanks outside of their building, they say they were just following orders. I wanted to, I wanted to right. get, I wanted to get into their head for a second. And with the idea that the rising of fascism is directly associated with the, with the destruction of empathy, with fascism does not work unless you can first eliminate empathy in the common man. One of the easiest ways to eliminate empathy is give them the job. 
Um, mm. There's an immediate acceptance of the bending of a moral code under the guise of survival and under the guise of sort of an automatic response to a, to a task given to you. So I, I pictured these two scumbags who should just kind of think that they're just doing their thing, and, but they're so far removed from empathy that all of a sudden the one guy starts to have this really strange feeling that he can't quite understand, or, or which is that he feels something. He feels something right. for this woman. And, and this woman who's coming down the line and who he ultimately is going to have to shoot. And, you know, he's sort of fantasizing, like, and sort of asking his friend, like, hey, man, like, I know that we just, we, we often rape and kill these people, you yeah. know, but do you ever kind of want to just, I don't know, just fucking grab them and protect them and run away from here and then go escape? And then you, and, and Cage's character is this sort of guy like, oh, hey, I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Like, go ahead, I'll cover for you. Go ahead, rape her. Yeah. And, right. and the guy's like, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, I, I, I I, mean, I want to protect her. And then it sort of goes into this fantasy. But the fantasy is distorted because the fantasy of love mm -hmm. and the fantasy of protection is coming from this guy who's completely lost connection to the human spirit, has no idea what empathy really is. So it's like a child trying to understand how to, you know, like sometimes a child will pet a pet a dog or something, but it's hitting the dog. You know, it's like, no, you got to like, right. you know <laughs> right. what I mean? Yeah. So this guy's fantasizing about him in his own fucking patriarchal, fucked up, dominating, evil way. He's grappling with the idea, the very natural idea of protecting someone and being empathetic and being in love with somebody. And he goes into this fantasy, you know, and even in the fantasy, he's fucked up. Even in the fantasy, mm. he's like, uh, I'm the first to touch you without gloves on. You're the first to kiss me without crying. It's this monster trying to yeah. express something beautiful, but there's nothing beautiful inside him. Um, you know, imagining escaping with this woman and living in the hills and them, you know, having this simple life together um, in which he lets her, you know, clean for him. It's just, you know, <laughs> Jesus, this is fucked yeah. up. He's dealing with, for the first time, all these ideas. And then at the end, he just shoots her. Right. At the and end, he, he, does, he does the job. At the end, he does yeah. the job. And that's and that and that's what I yeah. think is the truth of the the, the phenomenon. The end, the job Oof. gets done. Man, you know that's that's a that's a fucking fantastic story. Thank you. But then it's also a really fucking beautiful song. You Thank know what you, I'm man. saying? Like y'all really did that shit. Y'all did that. Y'all killed it with the raps, the beat, the the music, all of it, man. Like that's that's just like that to me is like one of the that's a, that's a fucking achievement. Thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying me and Cage really sat down i kind of laid out to him what i was yeah. trying to do and we really sat down and, and talked about it and the, the dynamic between the two guys you know and cage's dark has a dark perspective yeah. and i saw so I, I needed dark you know i needed i needed a guy who could get in touch with the darkness in the human heart to be that um guy who's like no i don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? it was like <laughs> the guy the guy's friend was like you know, listening and being like, mm, nope, not ringing a bell. Like, I don't know what it's like. <laughs> don't really know what it's like to, you know, to feel anything. You know? Which, of course, is, is not the truth of who Cage is, but he's a great right. writer and he always goes, you know, yeah, man, dark. So we, we really outlined it. And then the second part, the whole fantasy part, was really just me just sort of 
trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's trying but failing to be a good person. Really has no idea what it means, but is experimenting with it, daydreaming about it, yeah. and then and then kind of deciding like, eh, <laughs> you know. I've always been proud of that one. And I think that, um, you know, like you were saying, there are other genres in which kind of going there and building worlds and just sort of not and not worrying about losing anybody is par for the course to a degree. And sometimes when you do it in our genre, you might feel like you're taking a risk of losing people. You know what I mean? And I think that that's one thing that I definitely didn't ever give a fuck about was whether or not I was losing people because. As far as I was concerned, I really never had anyone. You know, like <laughs> all I got, all I ever did, all I ever got was because I wasn't thinking about anybody else when I made the shit. So, mm. whatever success that I did have, I could look through my whole catalog and be like, "There's really nowhere on here that I that I backed away from." Kind of, you know, that that shit. Right. So I just let my just let myself go into it. Like, fuck it, this is. This is the type of shit I'm interested in. That was a chance for me also to honor some of the lineage of the shit that I grew up on. I always like to think of myself as a child of the sort of dystopian historical future novel. Certainly everybody has picked up on it in my writing. Not sci-fi like, oh, it's, it's another planet and there's a crazy creature, you know, like <laughs> it has two mouths. But like the, the logical extension, the metaphor, the blown out metaphor of the human condition. And using science right. fiction, because it's simply in the future, you, you lose a lot of the um, prerequisite desire to keep it grounded. Just right. go for the metaphor and the commentary. And I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good enough writer to write the type of novels that inspired me. But I mm-hmm. wanted to at least contribute my version. Well, um, you know, it ends with her being shot. And I think, you know, maybe maybe this is just me projecting, but that's why I saw the link between that and then um, overly dramatic truth, because that seems to be very much about like ending something. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'd be scared for you, but you would ask telepath. You're too young to ask out loud. I'm too old and I know that. I can talk like you've not heard. I know whether you think words. I expose you to these terms. You still chose to roll on her. And, and, you know, I, I think for me, that song, Overly Dramatic Truth, it, it feels like it's in the vein of Last Good Sleep, Stepfather Factory, mm. and that it seems to be very rooted uh, in, in, in a real human moment that you're bringing into this this album. And from a listener perspective, it feels real. You don't you know, mm. I don't I'm not going to ask you whether or not it is. But like, I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is that seems very much as as dope of a song it is. It seems very much like a conversation between two people and i'd like to hear about your thoughts when it came to like making like a song like and it's a dope song too but but it does have that private element to it Mm. well that song was sort of real and sort of not i mean you know it was inspired by something in my life but Mm -hmm. it was it was an exaggeration it was again I, i i was using my life to create stories and to take the and to turn it into characters and you're right it does mm-hmm. have a conne- it does have a connection to um habeas corpses but like if habeas corpses is the violent scary version of a guy trying to do the right thing in a fantasy world that's very much not really grounded in like a simple personal story um i mm-hmm. think that there's an element of, of this one that is uh, it's sort of similar, except it's just a lot more grounded. And, 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 it, and mm-hmm. it is a good guy, but it's also not pure. He's not totally a good right. guy. I mean, 
he's also sort of self-aggrandizing. You know, it's like, oh, leave me. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just fuck you too well. And I won't be able to, you know, whatever it is, you know, like, but there was right. like, you know, you don't want any part of this, you know, this deepness. But, and, you know, it, 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 it kind of came out of the fact that I was dating someone who I, I broke up with. And I kind of, I, you know, it, it inspired it because part of the reason that we broke up was just because I felt like I was in a different place. She was a little younger than me. And I was like, mm-hmm. I just knew that I just wasn't where she was at. You know, I just, it sucked because I really, I really liked her, but I just knew where I was at was not where she was at. And, you know, she was in college. I was not in college. Uh, it was, mm-hmm. it was, right. I was doing other shit. So I just sort of took that as an inspiration, some of those feelings and kind of tried to talk about that situation and, and in a very exaggerated way. Yeah, no, yeah. None of these, none of these songs are me really, except maybe the last song on the record. And, and the first song on the record, which is based on a true story, but of course also not, but it's all based on shit that I felt. I don't know if you've ever dated somebody who's younger than you. And it's not, I'm not talking yeah. about like by vast amounts of time, but at a point in your life where the the time that is between you made a big difference, you know, it what makes I mean? a difference. Yeah. Like you're in like, two, like on the edge of two different generations, almost just, you know, by that difference. Right. Three, you're, four you, years. You whatever, got, right? you've got one foot into the next phase of, of sort of what naturally right. comes with just being a little bit older. And there are different guys out there. There are different types of people out there. There are people who like that power dynamic. There are people who take advantage yeah. of that power dynamic because <laughs> they, they like having the natural edge of power over somebody in a relationship. And then there's the other way to do it, which is recognizing and being like, actually, I don't think that that's the right situation. But it's hard to say that without sounding condescending. I was just kind of exaggerating and going through that whole thought process and imagining imagining somebody who sort of had some of the feelings that I had when I had split up with this girl, but just to a much more dramatic degree, which is why I called it the overly dramatic truth, because overly I was like, dramatic. this is so fucking, right. so over the top, you know? It's like, it really is just like, go on without me, I'm too tortured. But it was fun to write. It was fun, it was, it was fun to write and it was fun to perform. And it was rooted in something I felt, but you know, the reality of it is, it wasn't that serious. But these, gotcha. just, these, these, are, these are stories, you know? So I figured I'd just throw myself into whatever the character is fully knowing that I could also risk it, you know, that everyone might think that this is literally me. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a risk that you either are okay with taking or not. And I think that there are a lot of people who won't risk that. It's just not what they want to yeah. do. They just uh, they don't want to risk confusion. For me, it was okay. I didn't really give a shit. Well, and that kind of leads to uh, another question I had, which probably has a similar answer, but you know, throughout the history of you making songs, you can have a song that, is a really dope story, but your approach to the lyrics is never like simple. It's never like this happened and this happened and this happened. Like it's always a stylistic flair on it, right? I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, I hope oh, yeah, so. yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because of that, I'm sure there are people out there who just don't get it. And I wonder how much you're ever concerned with that. Like people like that you could spend all this time crafting this story, but there's some people who will never understand this story. Like how much does that matter? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That figured that figured that's, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because there are people who do get it, you know, the truth is, is that the shit, the way that I wrote, the way that I do my shit, it's not built for the fucking mainstream, man. It's not. Those records are, are are not built for 
people getting them really quickly. Mm-hmm. As long as somebody fucking gets this shit, then I'm, you know, I'm all right. How many people understand what the fuck you're saying? They catch- I mean, yeah, no, I run it, I run into it all the time. Yeah, they it actually, catch- but it's baffling to me. Well, they catch probably what they catch. Yeah, yeah. The hope of these things is that um, the presentation and the, and the feeling that is invoked from the music mm-hmm. keeps them around long enough so that eventually they kind of get what you're saying. For me, that's been the history of me with music. I fell in love with music way before I could understand the music. I was in love with yeah. Prince's music way fucking before I could get what the fuck he was talking about. I didn't understand right. anything that he said. Which is not the same. I'm not saying like, oh, one day you'll grow up and you'll understand. <laughs> it's like, nah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like my relationship with music was one that was intimate in the sense that I, I always had to come back to it. I always kept it running. And like there's shit that I'm catching to this day. There's shit that's just a private between me and music where I'm like, I'll get you yeah. one day. I'll get you one day. Like, right, right, right. It has nothing to do with anybody but me and the music. And and I'm listening to it, and like 20 years later, I'm like, okay, I get it. I hear the word now. You know, it's something I had to learn uh, because I, I had the same thing where music has been powerful for me. Like, there's still like there's there's Pixie songs that I love. I have no idea what the fuck Frank Black is talking about yeah. at all. No idea. Couldn't tell you a lyric, but I love the song. So you know like, how long it took I, me I've to, always to, understood. to understand that he was saying Caribbean? That I was just like, <laughs> I, I still was don't know. in the Barreras. And I was just like, <laughs> You know, so like, I, I understand that relationship. But I think when I came into music, like I came in as a rapper, I got, you know, like, barely a producer so like to me my whole contribution to the song is these ideas i've been slaving over you know what i'm saying and so like it really hit me when i first understood that there were people who were gonna fuck with my music Mm. but had no idea what i was talking about like that was a big mind fuck for me but it it was a it was the beginning of a of a lesson that you learn overall that you like once you like once you put it out it's up to people to kind of have their own relationship with it you know. Yeah, and I think you also got to be like realistic with yourself. What, what type of writer are you? You know, because there's ways mm-hmm. to write, which people get very clearly what you're saying. Um, but I think True. that if I, I think that if you're playing with pattern and words, and you're really into the poetry aspect of writing, you need to be okay with that being something that's a little impenetrable. Sometimes I definitely have had a way of doing my shit where I thought it was very clear sometimes and people were just like, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're saying. And I'm just like, damn, I thought that one was pretty clear, you know? Um, right. Um, and then I've had people surprise the shit out of me and just really get it. Like there's no problem. Like they completely get not only the references, but also the subtleties the stuff that's a little mm-hmm. bit buried. I mean, in the way, the way that I'm writing and the way that I chose to write the stuff that I was inspired by is a little buried. Um, you know, sometimes it's not just something that unfolds itself that has its ups and it has its downs, you know, the downside is, is, is that you can feel like, Oh shit. Like people aren't really hearing what I'm saying. If they heard what I was saying, maybe they would be into it. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> The upside is that we're just trying to work on art, right? Do you think that, you know, Jackson Pollock would ever give a shit if anyone was like, I don't understand. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we're talking about complex writing. We're talking about 
you know, abstract thought and poetry. And and you were saying that for you, that's this is what you do. And and the the mistake would be to possibly try to position this where it's like top forty because people aren't for the most part gonna get it. It's not that kind of thing. But you know, on this album. You know, it's 2006, 2007. You got Trent Reznor, you know, Cat Power, um, you know, Mars Volta, TV on the radio. And it's not necessarily mainstream, mainstream, but it's a uh, it feels a lot more above ground than underground hip hop. Mm. And did you have any anxiety about that, taking that step, putting yourself in a position where there's a chance more like hella more people will be exposed to your product and and it and will it did you have any anxiety about how it would perform in a high and off of a higher platform no luckily that wasn't an issue it wasn't <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it i wasn't. mean shit. it's it's i don't know it's it seemed like it seemed pretty damn successful so i i, I really don't know from no, from no, your was, vantage it, point you know it, sure it was successful in my world in our world you know and i always had been very comfortable doing about as good as you could in the indie rap world. And it was like I was doing Coachella, but I was like, you know, yeah. you have to have a magnifying glass to see my name, yeah, which right. is fine. I thought that the record had a chance of taking me a little bit further in my career for sure. But more importantly, I thought that, that I had stuck the landing. You know, it wasn't like, here's another fantastic damage. You know, it wasn't that. And I use, you know, some of my friendships with, you know, like all those people that you mentioned are on that record because I had worked with them in the past, like, few years, you know, before that record. Yeah. <clears throat> like, I worked with Reznor. I worked with, he sought me out, you know, to do a remix. And then when I asked him to do that, he was like, yeah. He was so generous, like, amazingly so generous. Cool. I mean, Trent Reznor's an icon. And you kind of don't know who's going to be cool. Like, people can be cool, but are they really going to, like, work like yeah. if you ask them to be on your album, are they really gonna like try as hard as you are? Are they really going to? Right. And that's always what I think that the, that the danger is with um, bringing other people in that you sort of admire. A, the danger is that you walk away from it being like, mm. but B, I think it's this: it's that your record is the most important thing to you in the world, yeah. and it's not something you can assume is the case with somebody else, especially if they're for sure. Up up here, you know, and you're down here. Mm -hmm. And the cool motherfuckers don't treat it like that. The cool motherfuckers, like Trent Reznor, send you back their best. I had just asked them to sing something. I wrote it. I asked them to sing it. And I said, maybe play some guitars or something. I don't know. You know, you're Trent Reznor. Like, you know, <laughs> I expected to have like one little thing and I would use it. Mm -hmm. And he sent back like a fucking, fucking 90 tracks of like him doing this shit in multiple wow. different ways harmonizing you know playing mad different shit you know and, and guitars and shit and um i probably used about as much of it as i possibly could i think that he <laughs> probably thought that i was just going to use like one thing but i was like i felt like i had hit the lottery i was like yo this motherfucker right. just sent me like yeah you know, so there's mad heart you can hear it when you listen to this <laughs> defiantology like Thousand and dropping it.
maximalist to, to the point of ridiculousness like I, I don't even know if he likes that song like, I, I remember like sending, <laughs> sending it to him like I, like part of me thinks like he must think that I just completely just took what he did and just was like Trent Reznor you know it's Trent <laughs> which I which I definitely did I, a little of, bit because yeah. I, I was psyched I was like hell yeah this is who the fuck what other fucking rapper has gotten Trent Reznor on the record and I'm not even in the mainstream I was psyched and I was proud like yeah people fuck with me you know and Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you listen to that, yeah, you'd be like, like, yo, are there like, are there like eighteen layers of Trent Reznor on this shit? Like, this definitely. Um, and you know, people like Mars Volta, who I had done remixes for, and who are just awesome dudes, and Sean Marshall, um, who's someone that I knew from just the Low East Side. I definitely reached out to other genres for that record. It was about the tone of the record. It was about the scope of the record, mm-hmm. and. Um, because the music was, like you mentioned, a little bit more melodic and a little bit more epic, I think, those really fit. I found myself straddling multiple worlds because I obviously just started as a dude with a sampler, like a kid with a sampler. But I had gotten to the point where people from other genres were getting into my shit and bringing me in and asking me to work with them. And it didn't feel like a duality or anything. It wasn't like, oh, this is when I'm in my rock thing and this is my because these people were coming to me because I did what I did in rap, you know, for me. So it was cool to to kind of have an excuse to orchestrate these voices that I, that I, and friendships that I had made through this stuff through my filter and kind of like bring them into my world and be like, you know, if I were doing it, it'd be like this. It was the first record where I had reached out to people like that. Um, Most of the time it was pretty, it was pretty internal, you know? Yeah. It was the camp, like the you know yeah. the, the cats you had been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so that's that's the that's the position of you know any anxiety about it possibly being mainstream. But let me ask the reverse then, and we kind of touched on this a little earlier. But like you said, you know, for the most part, you didn't give a fuck if anybody, you know, if you lost people potentially trying to you know do some different shit. Um, and it, you know, I I definitely remember for as much as I love this record, there were people like the, you know, the fucking meat and potatoes underground rap fans mm. who pushed back a little bit on you trying to go to these different places. And what, I guess... What, what were their fucking no names? Yeah. What were their names? <laughs> <laughs> and what it are was, their... It was... Uh, it was what are their MySpace pages? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm angry. Well, yeah, it was a hip, hip, hip-hop infinity. You know what I mean? J Lyrical 79. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, but I, knowing knowing that you didn't really give a shit about it, I guess the question is, were you surprised by it at all? I didn't notice, my dude. Sorry, I didn't okay. notice. Yeah, good I, shit. I mean, look, you know, I <laughs> maybe I should have, but I, but 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 not, but but when I say that I didn't give a fuck, I mean I really don't give a fuck. It's not like something that I'm like I don't give a fuck. I didn't think about it. I was, <laughs> I was just trying to make a piece of music, you know what I mean? And yeah, and I was trying to tour the world um, and perform that music, and That's we did, up. we did. And that record got you know, sold more than anything I'd ever done. And I was like, in my world, I was like, this is a success. And 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 because I did the record, I wanted to do, you know. And I was like, nah, actually, I think I'm at the top of my game on this one. You know, I don't always think that, by the way, of myself. Like, I'm not always. I don't yeah. look back on all my records like, oh, I was at the top of my game. 
I really felt at that right. time that that was the best piece of work that I had ever done. Um, but also, I like I said, I didn't care. Like I had no problem showing other people the scope of my um, inspiration, the scope of the way that I thought about music. And I think that I did push the boundaries on that one for sure. And and you'd be a fool to want to have both. You can't do both. And you can't. Right. You can't be like I'm yeah. going there. I'm gonna go there, and at the same time be like. I just hope everybody loves it equally. You know what I mean? It's, right. The world that we're in, man, and the world that I was in was a self-contained one to the degree where I somewhat created it so that I could be on my own musically. So I didn't have to think about it. I'm way more exposed now in Run the Jewels. Yeah. Run the Jewels that's, is yeah, like that's... damn near mainstream music now, as far as we can mm. be. It's still dudes who probably could never <laughs> quite be mainstream music, but... There's more people looking at this shit now than there was then, and I still don't care. I just don't have the capacity. I don't have the capacity to yeah. worry about both things. I have to do one or the other, you know? And entertainers have to worry a lot more, you know? I, I entertain in the context True. of what I do, but if you're an entertainer, that means that you gotta kinda like win motherfuckers. And a lot is riding on whether or not you can do a good first impression on someone who has no idea what you, are, right. what you do. You're a stand-up comedian, you get up in front of a crowd and tell a joke. There's no real world in which you can be like, they'll get it eventually. <laughs> you know, like, right. no. <laughs> you know. But, but, but for what we do, creating a piece of art that can sit in somebody's world forever and can potentially lure them back in for repeated listens, a little bit less pressure, I think. But more than anything, man, I just think that, um, I wanted to create something that I could do, like I could feel it on stage. Like I could feel emotions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel emotions on stage. I, wanna, <laughs> I could like, feel things. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, look, there's a lot of people who will just yep. feel feel cool on stage. And I do a lot of, mm -hmm. I feel cool and, and funny on stage music too. But in that moment in my life, I wanted to do yeah. a show where it could be powerful and simple and not have to talk much and not have to say, raise your fucking hands in the air, you know? For whatever yeah. reason, at that time in my life, I was like, I don't really even want to talk to the audience. I want the talking to be about the fucking the, the songs. That was just the phase I'm in. Now I'm going to put your hands in the air, motherfucker, again. So, you know. <laughs> it's all cycles, right? Mm -hmm. um, just to, 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 to um, you know, bring this to a close, man, one thing that it was fun running into when I was you know, doing research to, to put the interview together the fucking blog is still up, man. Is it? I'll sleep when you're dead. Blog spot is still up. And like, it's funny because every like there's so many entries on here. And every time I start looking at it, I just keep bouncing around to more entries. The thing is amazing. But just as a as an undertaking, uh, talk us through the idea of creating the blog as you're as you're making the album. You know, it's funny. That thing kind of grew a life of its own. Like even in yeah, the past 10 like years, that. it's almost like this legendary thing that at the time I wasn't really thinking too much about it. And it's crazy. It's still up. I got to look at it. I haven't even looked at it. It's for still up, man. Years. I mean, I don't know. You what, and all that, all that mustache, dude. It's so yeah, much mustache. Was, it's out of control. Traumatizing time. <laughs> a tough time in my life, man. I, you know, well, here's the thing about the mustache. This is a trick that I learned from Camus. So Camus... Mm. It was the guy that I learned about um, forcing yourself to work by embarrassing yourself through facial hair. Camus used to shave his head in the in the George Jefferson when he no. had <laughs> when he had to do it when he had to work and he had to force himself not to go out because Camus partied. You know, Camus would go out and mm -hmm. just 
wild the fuck out in, in these streets of New York. And so he, he came up with a system where he's like, the only way that I can stop myself from doing this is if I look so horrible that I won't go out. <laughs> And so he used to, so he used to, to do the, he used to make himself bald up here. And he was like 28, you know? And, and so, wow. and so I took that theory and, and, and I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to do that, but maybe I'll fuck with a mustache. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, cause if you have a mustache, you immediately look like a fucking dirtbag, right? Like that's, you immediately look like a scumbag. And if you have a really big mustache, it's just repellent to, to mo this is the way I thought. <laughs> of course, unfortunately, the thing that I didn't realize was that it kind of had the opposite effect on like, you know, like I didn't know that like the mustache wave was about to come back hard. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, the for, hip, it was the hipster, for, hipster mustache for wave, white yeah. guys. Yeah. I didn't know. I was on, I was the, I was on the unwitting co uh, cutting edge of that shit. Now I rock a mustache all the time. I don't give a shit. But at the time, it was a horrifying reality. And so I grew that. I was trying to force myself to finish the album. And, you know, the, yeah, I remember there's a picture of the shit like this and, um, <laughs> on the on blog. But, yeah, one day I just started making this blog spot thing. It's interesting because now we do that with Twitter and Instagram every mm -hmm. day, right? Or at least be, right. if, we're, if we're in a bad place in our lives. Um, <laughs> It just became this almost mood board for me. It was while I was making the record, I was trying to sort it out for myself and trying to sort out what it meant. I didn't think too many people would see that blog, but it caught on. It was sort of me putting up pictures and doing, putting little pieces of writing in that were kind of inspiring me during the process of making these songs for this record. Um, it was like me trying to kind of organize my thoughts and organize the imagery for the records i don't know what state it's in now is it just up in the way it was before i gotta check it out it um, seems like it it seems like it's up in reverse chronological order and you mm. can just click through all the entries on the side and it's mm. just it's just there mm. it's really something it's really something because you you know the way the way blogs operated of course was that you would just put down your thoughts that day mm. you know what i'm saying and like you would you were kind of breadcrumbing the creation of the album and like mm. now you know, I can fully sit with the album and go back and look and be like, damn, this was the seed of this. And this was mm. the seed of this. And like, you know, and it's 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 really dope as like companion hmm. creative. You know what I'm saying? It's it's really tight that way. Maybe I should fucking print it out, sell it with a deluxe version of the of the vinyl. There you go. Uh, maybe I can get the money off <laughs> that shit. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I'm going to get my money out of those motherfuckers. But yeah, no, it was. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, we're making things, you know, whether it be scribbling down on a, you know, in a book or whether it be shit saving a picture on your phone that just invokes some sort of feeling. Um, the times that I've done shit like that, where I've been like, I'm not really getting anywhere right this second, but I still am being creative. The wheels are turning here. I'm, right. I've never been a diary guy. I've never been a journal guy. So that was like the kind of the first time I ever tried that. And um, I, pr I banded it pretty quickly. The way that the record starts is with something that did happen to me where, you, where I was in the train station and I bumped into someone that I knew late at night and I didn't want to see them. I didn't really know them, but I, I knew them, you know. You know, you're like, you get trapped, yeah. you know, you got to ask what's up because it's polite. 
but just begging, you know, praying to yourself, like, I hope they don't tell me the truth. I hope they don't tell me the truth. I don't really want to know. I can't handle the truth. You know, I just want you, let's just be polite here. Like, tell me everything's cool. Give me a pound. Let's go. And so the record opens with, with that experience, but instead of it being, you know, oh, yeah, everything's cool. All right, cool. Good to see you. Pound. Let's go. The dude's like, oh, you want to know how I'm doing? Here's how I'm doing. I'm going fucking crazy. Gone crazy. Bumped into this kid I knew, he often it was strange. So I ignored the blood on his laces, so this cat can save face. The dunks and the gays stayed in a off gray haze, and the lump in his pocket talked to the ox that he clutched safe. So I saluted him there, waiting for the aim. Trapped in an empty platform, but I had the option to escape. Gave him a standard, yo, what up, man? How you landing? And the hypnotized response was no surprise. Yeah, we all do, that's a standardized refrain, but also really real, man. Good to see you, really, what the dilly deal. Boots, screwed the pooch, that's too much, knew the truth. On the train now, a caboose, in his brain now, no recluse. And, and, you know, from the moment that you're on this, this Tasmanian pain coaster, as I call it, it's about a, a truth dump. It's about a dimensional truth dump. All of the lies of what we tell ourselves to keep ourselves sane, all of the justifications that we make for for just even being able to get through the day because you have to lie to yourself about, you know, sometimes just to get through the day without crying, just to get through the day without breaking down or feeling loss or feeling confusion or shame or whatever it may be in a society that is completely erected by falsities and then built upon those falsities. And then we're all tasked unwittingly to try and maintain them. But we're built and then immediately Mm -hmm. tasked with this job. Hey, welcome to the world. Now you have to fucking justify this monster that we've created. See if you can walk around <laughs> and hold this illusion up for us. And I think that some people crack under that. And I know I have. And so the whole story is about this loss of the mirage, this traumatic, devastating pulling away and just dealing with nothing but madness and truth. And, um, and then at the end of it, deciding that despite that the honorable thing to do is to fight the honorable thing to do is is to live because it's the one thing that you you can do the one thing that you have control over that you can fight and um and that was the story that's all sleeping you're dead well that's that's beautiful man and that's a beautiful place i think to leave it this is an album you know um i'm happy to be able to talk through celebrate um and hopefully you know reintroduce some people too man i just think i think it's just you know it's one of them ones man it's 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 this is this is some some high level shit man thank and, you man and, um, thank you it's, it's 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 an amazing amazing album and i'm and i'm um i'm glad to get this insight from you about it yeah my pleasure mike i appreciate it and uh i think we'll call it an episode here folks um Thanks for tuning in and listening to uh, Mr. LP speak his mind and his experiences about this project. And, uh, you know, of course, tune in next week for more. Finally getting a chance. <laughs> um, Till next time, y'all. Peace. 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 Stony Island Audio.